he's an alcoholic, an addict, she's really cynical, demanding, selfish, whatever it might be. We're going to look at it from the perspective of diving into why. Why do we do those things? Some of the things I just listed, those are just symptoms, right? We're going to get to why is it that we act certain ways, say certain things, and perhaps entertain certain thoughts. And really, the root issue of everything we're going to be talking about centers around trust, okay? Trust is, amen, thank you, trust is a big issue in our world. We all want it in all of our relationships. We desire it. Every paper currency in our country says, in God we trust, which is kind of funny, a little bit, right? It's kind of part of our culture and our motto as Americans. And, you know, whether or not we as a country as a whole really do trust in God, that's a discussion for another day. But to kick us off, I want to show a funny clip um, from a movie that really kind of emphasizes how important trust is. So if you're a fan of the movie Meet the Parents, you might get a kick out of this one. So real quick context, Greg, also called Gaylord Fokker, great name, he's dating Jack's daughter, okay? And Jack believes that he has discovered some drug paraphernalia that belongs to Greg, and this is his awkward attempt to approach this conversation. Here we go. Such a good movie. The Circle of Trust. It's important to any man trying to snatch a woman. You want to be in the circle of trust with her parents, right? Very critical. In order for us to really understand why we disobey, we have to go back to the beginning. You guys know the story. First humans to ever exist, Adam and Eve, were placed in the garden. A beautiful garden. It was complete paradise, heaven on earth. God said, everything's yours except this, this one tree, right? Eat anything you want except for this one tree. If you eat this tree, you'll die. So here comes Satan in the form of a serpent. It says, did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll be like him, and you'll know good and evil. In other words, Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God could not be trusted, okay? That God was kind of holding out on them. And this lack of trust in God and his goodness is the reason why we see, really, the first sin being committed by mankind. Because when we don't trust God... When we don't trust that he's good, all kinds of patterns and behaviors flow. 
from that lack of trust. And that's what we're going to look at today. So go ahead and open your Bibles um, to Genesis 30. We're going to look at just a few passages. Um, We're going to look at the behavior of a woman that did not trust God's goodness. Should be page uh, 41, I think. This is the story of Jacob's wife, Rachel. She desperately wanted to have a child, and it was not happening. Genesis 30, just the first two verses there. It says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? We don't have the time to get into it, but if we were to keep reading, we discover that Rachel gives Jacob her servant to sleep with in order to build a family with Jacob through her servant because she was unable to get pregnant. And because she wasn't getting what she wanted in this situation, a child, she stopped trusting God's goodness. Life wasn't going as she planned And her lack of trust led her to respond in a similar manner as many of us do, control. Perhaps in our pride, we think we can make life give us what we want. Maybe we think we know what's best. And so if we can maneuver a few people, a few situations, then life will be how we desire, how we want it to be. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, most of us don't flat out disobey God. We just don't fully obey him, okay? Partial obedience. Partial obedience is no obedience. Because if we're being honest, we kind of like to micromanage our lives a little bit and slip our ideas and our agenda in there, and we just ask God that he would meet us halfway, right? This is what I want. If you could kind of meet me there, God, that would be great. And we could go down the line throughout the Bible and look at dozens and dozens of characters who desired to control their lives. King David's son, Absalom, he, he used flattery to win the hearts of people to control his power, to turn others against his father. King Nebuchadnezzar tried to control his empire by treating people ruthlessly. Judas Iscariot tried to control Jesus by forcing him into action through his betrayal, thinking that maybe he'd finally lash out on the Romans if they came to him and arrested him. And this issue of control hits really close to home. If I had to pinpoint the area of most struggle in my life, it would be in my parenting. Anybody else? Okay. My kids and my wife, Sarah, get to see the worst of me, and it is not pretty, okay? You might think that I'm a nice guy, or maybe you don't, and that's, that's cool, that's fine, I'll take that, but I tell you what, when my kids trigger me, I can turn into a monster, okay? A total monster. With three kids under five in our home, um, our house feels more like a circus than anything remotely close to resembling a place of rest, um, It's chaos from about 6 a.m. when they wake up to about 8 p.m. when they go to bed. 14 hours 
of joyful playing mixed with screaming, fighting, yelling, whining, meltdowns, and everything else you can imagine. I've had to literally kick down doors that my kids have locked me in. I have the visual evidence of this. Um, so I slapped a little bit of uh, gorilla tape on there and fixed it. <laughs> and it was good as new. Sarah did not roll with this. We had to, you know, put a new door on. This was not acceptable. Um, I've caught my kids with butcher knives, so that always makes me feel good. That was actually on my watch. Um, so, <laughs> so that always makes me feel like I'm, you know, excelling um, as a parent. So I can lose it at home, okay? And my tendency is to say, man, my kids drive me nuts. They make me this way. But the real reason for my yelling, demanding spirit, however it might come out, is because my kids remind me that I'm not in control, okay? They are not little robots that are going to do everything that I want them to do. And because I struggle to believe that God's going to give me the strength and the patience to handle it and to be a good dad, I try to control them to get them to act in a way that seems best to me or for me. Anybody else here struggle with control? Okay, if that's not your struggle, I think we're going to get to you here in a few minutes. <laughs> so, since we often try to control our lives when we stop trusting that, he's, that God's good, we have to consider who we put our trust in. This is a really interesting question, and I want some feedback. Who do you trust in every day that you don't even know? Think about it. In the everyday moments of your life, the big, the small, who do you trust in that you don't really even know? The floor's open. What do you think? The pilot of a plane. The pilot of a plane. Yeah. You trust he knows what he's doing. You hope so. Yeah. Matt. Yeah, when you're on an elevator, you really trust that, yeah, the engineer knew what he was doing when he was hired to install this elevator. Yeah, that's good, Nick. Chick-fil-A, you trust them, they're going to nail it. They're going to nail your order. You don't know them, maybe, but you trust they're going to deliver. That's good. Yes? Uh, other drivers. Other drivers. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Good. Drivers, okay. Anybody else? Is that it? So I've somebody else raise their hand. Brandon. Oh, yeah, you trust doctors. They're going to be able to know what's up, give the right diagnosis, maybe give the right medicine. That's good. You trust your pastor? Oh, hopefully, hopefully, we're, hopefully we're preaching the word and not heresy. Woo. Yeah, that's good. We trust sinful and selfish people every single day, whether we're aware of it or not. Every time we get in the car... If I'm on the highway, I trust that the semi heading in the opposite direction is not going to swerve over into my lane. I, I, I trust that. And I don't know that guy. He's done nothing to make, make me trust him. We trust weather forecasts for the most part. <laughs> right? And they might determine for quite a few of us what we're going to wear on a given day. When I make a deposit at the bank, I trust that those tellers aren't going to steal my money, right? They could. They have easy access to it, but I trust they won't. Most of society is built on trust. Many of the people we encounter every day have done nothing for us, 
and yet we trust them. So how much more should we trust a good father that created us, died for us, and gives us promised eternal hope with him in paradise? And if we're going to stop being people that grasp for control when we're in distress, we have to rid ourselves of how we think things need to be, how we think life needs to turn out. To think that we know what's best in any situation is, is why we can so easily start to doubt God's goodness. Because our trust is not in our circumstances. It's in the person and character of Christ. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians 3, fix your eyes on things above. Set your heart, set your mind on things above, not in this world. Everyone and everything will fail you at some point, and you will fail others too. How does your desire for control hinder your obedience? For those of you that raise your hand. How does wanting, grasping for control keep you from obeying God? Let's get into the second reason why we disobey. Anger and bitterness. This is a fun one. I've got a photo here. Does this describe anybody when they're on the road and somebody cuts them off? <laughs> right? I hope you don't carry a hammer in your car. You're going to lay the hammer down. We've got some Thor lovers out here. My goodness. Ready for war. Now, there are people, you can take that down. There are people who are blatantly angry. No doubt about it. We all know them, okay? Maybe they're in our friend circle or we're kind of stuck with them in our family, okay? But then there are a lot of people, this is more so people you find in the church, whose anger just kind of simmers beneath the surface. It lingers deep down, okay? Check out what the book of James had to say related to this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. We all have desires in life, obviously. But the reality of living in this fallen world is that many of those desires won't come true or at least they won't look like the promised land that maybe we dreamed our lives would look like. And we can so easily become bitter with God thinking that we deserve more and that we deserve better when we're not happy with how our lives are turning out. We can point the finger at God and tell him how it's not fair that we haven't found a spouse. It's not fair that we haven't been able to get pregnant. It's not fair that I didn't land that job or get that promotion. Fill in the blank for what that might be for you. How about this false narrative? Why does God continue to allow people to hurt us? Why does it seem every time I trust somebody, they hurt me? They stab me in the back. They betray me. They lose my trust. We can think God is distant and disconnected from our pain, when really just the opposite is true. When we are suffering most, 
That's precisely when Christ's heart is closest to us. His arms are reaching out to us, and when we don't trust his goodness, we can so easily turn to anger and bitterness at how messed up the world is in general or how broken our lives are specifically. So if that might connect with you, consider how does anger hinder your obedience? How does bitterness keep you from obeying God? Check out this book by um, Dane Ortland and his book, um, Gentle and Lowly. Sorry, a quote that we actually passed out a bunch of copies of this. It says, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. That's rich, guys. So what he calls Dark thoughts of God's heart is what we're calling not trusting God's goodness. Okay? Satan knows that if he can get us to believe that God's not good, that God cannot be trusted, he has won the battle. He, if we cannot do that, he knows he's won the battle because nobody willingly follows the leadership of someone they don't trust. Nobody. So there's anger and bitterness. And last one, and boy, this is a big one, guys. The other reason why we disobey, of course there's more, but for the sake of time, we can't get into all of them. Fear. I got an image that kind of just really captures this well. Do you know that do not fear is the most repeated command in the Bible? Fear not is found over 365 times in Scripture because God knew we needed to hear it at least once a day, right? Here's how fear plays out. When we fail to trust he's good, fear creeps in because if God can't be trusted, then who in the world can be? And so fear takes over our lives. Perhaps you can relate to this. It's kind of really connects with what Bob was saying a little bit ago. Let's say God puts an idea in your mind or he nudges you to do something, okay? Maybe he's asking you to initiate a conversation with a stranger or to approach that classmate that he's been nudging you to talk to, to have a conversation with them about their faith. Maybe God's nudging you to step into a leadership role, perhaps here in the church, step, step into a ministry, it doesn't take long, most of us just a few seconds, for fear to kick in. Thoughts that sound something like this. What if they think I'm weird, right? What if I make them uncomfortable? What if I fail and disappoint them if I were to do that? Man, what if I disappoint myself? I'm sick of disappointing myself. Maybe it's just best to keep things as they are and not risk it. Fear is real and it is paralyzing. 
It keeps many of us from walking in obedience and stepping into a life that actually requires faith. If I'm being honest, it is kind of hard to find Christians who are actually stepping into challenging or perhaps uncomfortable situations that require legit faith. That's rare. Think about it. To say yes to God in a way that will be challenging or uncomfortable means that you can't be a slave to fear. You can't be a slave to fear while also walking in obedience to God and saying yes to him every day. Those two things cannot coexist. And thankfully, we serve a God that asks us to simply live in the moment one day at a time. Because he said today has enough worries of its own, right? It's got plenty of enough worries of its own. We have a million, but what if scenarios that can go through our minds and fill us with fear. But God assures us he's got us. I love the verse. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that's why the author of Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Submit to him and he will make your path straight. And one of the reasons fear is so powerful and such a struggle for us is because we have a limited perspective on what's going on in God's kingdom. Okay? We have a very limited perspective. We can only see what we can see, right? We can only see our present moment, our present situation, feel the pain that we're in or the pain that we fear might be down the road. God, however, sees the big picture. He's got the grand scope of eternity as his viewpoint, okay? Rather than just this vapor of time that makes up our lives. Let's look at one final story here to kind of drive this home. Open up to Matthew 25 with me. a story you're familiar with. It's called the parable of the talents. I think in your pew Bibles, page 902, I think it's referred to, no, 1414, sorry. I think they call it the parable of the bags of gold. Makes me think of little leprechauns. It's not what we're talking about, though. Okay, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Jesus says, this is him talking to his disciples. Jesus says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done. 
good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a harsh story, guys. Did you catch what the servant with one bag said in verse 25? I was afraid. I was afraid, and so I went and I hid your bag in the ground. Fear. It gripped his heart. He was afraid and disappointing his master, and so he did nothing. How many of us have been given tremendous financial resources, leadership skills, musical, artistic talent, or some other type of gift, and we bury it? Maybe we're generous or we use it just a little bit, but nothing even close to what God designed when he gave that to us. Has God given you a dream that would help other people in this city flourish? But you're holding out on sharing that dream because you're afraid of what it might demand of you. That's what we call a scarcity mentality. We cannot live with a scarcity mentality while also trusting that God's good. It's one or the other. A scarcity mentality, which is rooted in fear, says, I don't have time to do that. Can't commit to that. I don't have the capacity to step into that situation, to step into that relationship. People probably wouldn't listen to me anyway. Too much work. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. How does fear hinder your obedience? What does fear look like in your life? How's it keeping you from obeying God? Author John Bloom, man, this is a great quote. Six words, he said, you obey the one you fear. You obey the one you fear. When you fear that you're not enough, or think that you don't have enough time, energy, money, resources, you will always play it safe. You'll hold it tightly. Fear. 
When you fear what others think, you'll always do what they want or what you think they want. You will rarely, if ever, step out in faith and you'll settle for a life that is far less than the abundant life God created you to live. And like the father of the epileptic boy in the book of Matthew, if you remember that, it's not that most of us, like him, don't believe in God. It's just that we still lack a lot of faith in God. This man was begging for Jesus to heal his young boy. Jesus said to him, everything's possible for the one who believes. And immediately his father said, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help us all overcome our unbelief, Lord. Amen? So we're going to close our time today by doing something different. We're going to do a little bit of a spiritual exercise together that I'm excited about. Um, when we find ourselves lacking faith or when our hearts are gripped by fear, one of the best things that we can do is remember God's faithfulness. It's one of the best things we can do. So I'm going to invite my friend Matt Robertson up. Might need to get this mic here, buddy. And he's going to set up just kind of this time um, of reflection. And then once we're done, I'll come back and pray for us. Awesome. Thank you, Justin. Um, yeah, just to set up just the importance of remembering and just how that either combats or enables a spirit of fear, focusing our minds on remembering the faithfulness of God. And now to give a connection to this um, of how we now regularly call to our memory the faithfulness of God in the grand story, just I want you to imagine, it might seem like a really erroneous you know, imagining of this situation, um, but just imagine for a moment, if we decided for whatever reason, for the next five years, we were not going to celebrate Christmas or Easter, we're just not going to do it. At the end of those five years, how would you describe our memory and our emotional connection to the grand story of God's faithfulness as he gave us his one and only son and he died for our sins? If we just stopped year after year having that space of memory, what would that do to us? Now, as you think about that, and that's one big, those are two grand moments. However, we do that all the time in our own and collective individual stories of where God has found us and has been faithful to us, has made a call on our lives, and has proven that he is trustworthy. We do that a lot. He has, he has shown us that faithfulness, however, with lack of calling to our memory, we just forget. It's really easy to forget that any of that ever happened, and our memory and emotional connection to that will just fade like a vapor. So to combat that, um, we want to offer you guys just something in regards to, and then consider the alternative of what we do on Christmas and Easter. We gather the family around, right? We tell the story the power of Christianity comes in storytelling, right? Coming, coming together and remembering God's faithfulness. Um, so in your individual stories, your collective stories and your, the people close to you, what 
needs to be celebrated? What needs to be remembered? What needs to be marked on the calendar like Christmas and Easter where you gather people together and you tell the story of God's faithfulness? So to help you out, well, I'm gonna, we're going to put two different slides up here. So if the first one's up here, if you want to take a picture of this, this is kind of more uh, explains your story or something that you can connect to. Um, this is more of a story of God's faithfulness and finding you in a place. Think of Egypt, finding you in a place of slavery. If you were going to mark a calendar date of this is when God found me, for me, I can mark March 19th, 2019. And I can gather you and tell you a story. So if you have a date that you would want to put on the calendar and tell a story, maybe you haven't done that where you've actually had time to reflect on that story. But check this out. Just a good who, what, when, where. Just to give us a good rundown of the story. Where did God find you? When did you realize you needed rescue? Who did God use to draw you out? How did God begin to break the chains of slavery? And what were those first steps of freedom like? If you gathered people around and you had a chance to write down the story and share it, not just one time, but again and again and again, what would that do to your memory and your calling to awareness of how faithful God is? And what would that do for your desire to obey God's calling in your life? The second one is more of an Abraham-like call to faith. So if you were like called to something big, we had to step out and you're like, oh, this is big. Um, but I needed God as I took a step of faith. So where, where did you feel God was calling you to go? How did you initially feel or respond? What obstacles did you face along this path of faith? When did you start to feel God's faithfulness? And who has been blessed by God giving you this call? So, the, power, the great thing about memory is that the power of memory rests a less in the past than we like to think. Memory of something that happens in the past. But when we call memory into our minds, actually memory happens to us in the present moment. So we are calling to consider, we are calling to our minds what has happened in the past, God's faithfulness. But the power of memory is that it happens to us in the current moment. And then what we remember then becomes our anticipated future. So as you have time to just reflect on these questions, we're going to give you a moment just of, of silence, just to recall that story of faithfulness. And we just really hope that it is a blessing. And then you do take some time to put that on your calendar. Treat it like a holiday that God has earned as he's put that story of faithfulness, his faithfulness in your story. Um, so we're going to take some time, and, and then Justin's going to come up and close us in prayer.
God, we thank you so much for the silence and for the gift of remembrance. For the gift of just recounting, God, your faithfulness to us. As Matt said, drawing us up out of, drawing us out of Egypt, God, when we were lost and enslaved. For your faithfulness, God, of stepping into faith to follow you, Lord. In the big and small moments of our lives, God. Lord, we want to be people that trust you fully and completely, God. We know that when that trust is missing and lacking, God, that's why we turn to so many of these things that we discussed today. Control, fear, anger. And there's so many more, God. Lord, help us to continue to trust that you are good by remembering and recounting your faithfulness to us throughout the years, God. And we thank you for your magnificent love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and continue in worship?